0: Welcome to Aging is Living, a podcast brought to you by Central Plains Area Agency on Aging, which highlights topics and people who promote purposeful living and positive aging. My name is Joe Samaniego.
1: And I'm Amy Arnold. Today we have Carolyn Harrison as our guest. Carolyn is an independent nurse educator and the chair of the K-pop steering committee. And she's here today to talk with us about advanced directives, something that I think everyone should be talking about no matter how young or old you are. It is important to have that information. So thank you, Carolyn, for being here. Thank you, Amy, for the invitation.
2: Um, You said I was the chair of the TPOP steering committee, and um, I'll I'll first explain what that acronym is, T-P-O-P-P. It stands for Transportable Physician Orders for Patient Preferences. And it really is not an advanced directive, but it is something that could be an additional step to write down your wishes if you would be terminally ill or have a chronic advanced illness. And we are using that um, here in... Kansas and Missouri uh, since 2014, um, actually here in Wichita, Sedgwick County, and it's in some other cities in Kansas, but um, that's another whole podcast, <laughs> I think, on teapot. But if you Google that, we do have a website, T wichita.edu or .org, and um, it, it will explain much more about it, and you can get it from your physician, or you can get it at the hospital and, but again, you would be having a chronic advanced illness or terminal mm-hmm. illness. Mm-hmm. So,
1: Awesome. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your work with advanced directives.
2: Um, I have, I'm a registered nurse. I have a master's degree from Wichita State University, so go shocks. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a certificate in clinical healthcare ethics from the uh, Ganegie School of Clinical Healthcare Ethics in St. Louis, and that mm-hmm. has really been My passion in nursing in the last 20 years, I worked for a nonprofit called Kansas Health Ethics that we promoted ethics um, in healthcare, and I did education there on advanced directives. So almost 20-plus years I've been doing education on advanced directives, and I was the education director there. Um, I serve on some boards here in Wichita, all related mostly to health education. And uh, so that's really been my passion, and I'm an advocate for patient education in many ways. So I appreciate you asking me here today. So,
1: so um, since our topic is advanced directive, um, a lot of people don't really know what that means. They just know it's part of you know what you would typically call end-of-life planning. But you don't have to wait till end-of-life to do it, correct? Correct, <laughs> correct. If you're 18 and older... So again, mm-hmm. it's for
2: anyone over the age of 18. An advance directives, it's spelled A-D-V-A-N-C-E, don't add another letter to it, directive. And what that, they were actually established in 1992. The federal government said that this is really important. People should have a uh, decision maker for them at the end of life or that would know their wishes for care if they could not speak for themselves. So in every state of the United States, we have uh, advanced directives. They are, uh, they've all been established through the legislature, so they're actually a statute in all 50 states. Um, the teapot form is not, but the advanced directives, which I'll talk about today, are uh, statutes. And so this is something that you really should think about. If, you're, if your children are 18 and older, they should be thinking about, well, who, who would make decisions for me if I could not? or I'm unable to. What if I'm in an accident, a car accident, and I go to the hospital, and who would, would they know who to call? Mm-hmm. So um, these are really forms, paper, but I also really encourage people, it's just a piece of paper. You really should have the conversation with your family and, and
1: mm-hmm. loved
2: ones about um, what's important to me. What do I want and not want in terms of care? Because you have the right to make those decisions. So, an advanced directive is really there's only three types the uh first one is the durable power of attorney for health care. The second is living will, and the third is do not resuscitate So you may have heard those terms. so when you go to the hospital actually on admission, they are required to ask you that. Do you have your advanced directive do you mm-hmm. have do you have them here with you? We'll make a copy and put it in your chart because they need to know who to contact if something would occur. Um, and certainly, in this time of COVID and dilemmas of healthcare and, and chronic illnesses, we we need to have that information available to healthcare professionals.
1: Exactly. Yes. So, um, you said there are three different types. How do you get the forms? How do you fill them out? What's the process?
2: Good. Good question, Amy. Um, the forms are really available through any hospital admission department so if you are from a small town you can go to your hospital uh, if they have one or your physician you can ask your physician for one if you're uh, computer savvy you can google uh, advanced directives in whatever state you live in uh, in kansas you can get them from wichita medical research education foundation it's the acronym is wmref but the website is wichita medical dot org And you can uh, go then to the word on the left, That's an icon, it says advanced directives. You can print out the forms at home free of charge. Um, Many times when you go to a lawyer and do a will or Mm -hmm. uh, a trust, that sort of thing, they also include the healthcare advanced directives. These are only for healthcare. They're not for, you know, your furniture, who gets the couch, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing with a will uh, and your money that this is uh, these forms are only for healthcare. So, the durable power of attorney for healthcare is the first one, and it is sometimes called a healthcare power of attorney. Um, and we don't want to confuse it with the durable power of attorney for finances. Mm-hmm. And people ask me this question a lot of times should you pick the same person for finances and for healthcare? And that's really up to you. You might have a child that is really good with numbers and finances and business, and they want to be the financial DPOA. That is a different form you get from an attorney, or you can get those online, as I understand too, but most of the time, an attorney would provide that for you. Also, um, the form is really very general. It's not specific about your wishes, but it's very specific about who you've chosen to make decisions for you. So. Who should I choose? That's always a good question, too. So you have to think about that for yourself. Uh, for example, for me, I had three daughters. So I sat them down and said, Who wants to help make these decisions? And one of them, that's very business minded, said she would be the DPOA for finances. And the other two were in healthcare. So they became. But that's not always true for everybody. Mm-hmm. So you pick the people in your family that you most trust. You know, I, my house, my spouse is also the first dpoa for healthcare um for someone who has siblings only you know it might be a sibling it might be a friend at your church it might be your next door neighbor that you keep talking with <laughs> at coffee you know it it is up to you but who would i trust that's the most important thing to help make decisions for my healthcare when i cannot so that's that's really the important thing i think about durable powers of attorney but there's they have to make decisions like do you wanna be hospitalized? Mm-hmm. Does my 98 year old grandmother wanna be hospitalized when she would rather die at home, you know, for whatever
1: reasons. And that's where the conversation comes in. It's not just a piece of paper. You have to have, cause the paper isn't gonna say, I want this necessarily.
2: That's exactly right, Amy, it doesn't, these are not specific enough. So it might be important to write these down and also have that note notarized. Um, don't write them on a napkin and lose that you know but <laughs> yeah. write it down and then have it notarized too but it might be too uh, also very important to discuss who are my doctors because I have children that live away from Wichita they have no idea unless I write it down who might and that changes mm-hmm. you know so the choice of your physicians is important to share with your DPOA for health care and also those long-term care decisions, you know, do I want to go to a nursing home? Do I want to, you know, stay an age in place and have some day-to-day help if I can afford it, that sort of thing. So
1: what's the, the next type other than the next
2: type I would I would really encourage people to look at is the living will. And you can get that document also. It is part of the advance directives. But As I mentioned just a moment ago, on the DPOA for healthcare, you're choosing somebody to make decisions. So they need the living will if you feel that uh, you agree with the information that's on the living will. And I'll point out some of the wording that I think is so important in the living will. It starts out with, I'm making my desire known that my dying shall not be artificially prolonged under the circumstances set forth below. Now that's still pretty general. What does that mean? Um, I don't want uh, artificially prolonging my life like if I'm on a particular medical intervention, which could be dialysis, could be um, a feeding tube, it could be a ventilator. Those are all decision-making that the durable power of attorney might have to decide. So you should share your you know, your, your values about that. Sure, I want it if it's post-op and I need it to get better. But what if I've had a severe stroke and now they say the only way we can keep her, you know, getting fluids is to give her a feeding tube. Well, what if I'm not going to recover from this severe stroke? But if it's a mild stroke you know, that might be different. So we need more facts. The Mm -hmm. durable power of attorney is going to have to be someone will ask questions, you know, and trust the physicians and nursing personnel and all the other healthcare professionals. So it's very important, Um, but also the living will has some very clear words about if this is an incurable injury, illness, or disease certified to be a terminal condition. So that kind of narrows the window down of what a living will becomes important. Mm -hmm. It's not if I'm well, you know, it becomes important when I have an incurable illness, injury, or disease.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay.
2: Such as what, uh, well, today, COVID. If it's incurable and I'm at the point where maybe I've been on the ventilator for three months and the doctor says she's never going home, Mm -hmm. we cannot. We, we've we done all the medical interventions and she's not going to survive this illness, or it might be with chronic heart disease. There's other diseases that we have to say, eventually we, we can't, we don't have any more medicines to try. Mm-hmm. So incurable would be a, a situation that maybe a durable car attorney would have to say, you know, you can say, well, what do we do next? Or the doctor may say, we're running out of options here. I think that we need to talk about maybe withdrawing some of the things and then letting um, a natural death occur. And interestingly, the Living Will in Kansas, the subtitle of it is Kansas Natural Death Act. Hmm. So okay. the Living Will is very important. It does not require a DPOA's name on it at all. Okay. Because we did that with the DPOA for healthcare. So a Living Will is a different form, but it's evidently used whenever there is a chronic illness, injury, or disease that the person will not survive. Okay. Okay. And then the third form um, is the DNR, oftentimes we use that acronym and that means do not resuscitate. I always start the conversation with patients first about what is CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Because the DNR form, the only thing it stops is cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And that means if your heart would stop, I always ask this question of people: if your heart would stop in this room, would you want me to start resuscitation and call nine one one? Yes, please. Okay,
0: <laughs> Joe, I'm CPR certified, so let me know. Oh, great!
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm lucky to be in a room with somebody who's CPR certified, which is very interesting because sometimes you you know if you wish to be resuscitated, nobody knows how to do it, right?
0: And or they don't you, know whether it's your will or not. That's
2: Mm. exactly right. That's exactly right. So a DNR, if let's say I'm of the age of, even if I'm 75, but I have a chronic illness that I, you know, it's, it's, it's progressing rapidly now. And I have Parkinson's, let's say, let's just throw that, you know, (laughs) illness. It's on the list I don't want to have, but it can be that then it gets to the point where you cannot survive that illness. Mm -hmm. So then I may have to initiate a DNR, but you know, and this can happen. It happened with my my mother who at the age of uh, 73, she had diabetes for many, many years. And she decided that after bilateral amputee of her legs, uh, very chronic uh, illnesses that she had, she said, if my heart stops, don't do anything. So she put in place a DNR. But that's something that you might have a conversation along the way and you put it in place or the DPOA has to say, mm-hmm. we need to maybe talk about this, that she would have wanted, uh, uh, do not resuscitate at this time. So it's very important um, also to know that DNRs are rescinded during surgery. So let's say that I'm I have a DNR, I have kidney failure and various things that are, you know, looking like I really should not be resuscitated. But they want to do surgery on my kidneys. Or uh, maybe kidney, they have to do some surgery on my heart, or whatever it might be I need. Well, during surgery, DNRs are rescinded, and then they start them back up after post-op at some point. Because during surgery, the anesthesiologist is really obligated to keep you, you know, your heart going as much as they can. They may have to use medications. Um, So that just so you know, DNRs are rescinded during surgery
1: that's an interesting fact you didn't know that i did not either what also is interesting and maybe maybe it's just me but i think i confused the GNR with also being and living well i think i, I in the past i think i've thought oh well if you have a GNR, that also means no feeding tube no you know extraordinary things, but it's not. You need both of them.
2: You're correct, Amy. Um, DNR is only applied to the fact that you wish not to be resuscitated. It doesn't mean no care will be given. Some Mm -hmm. people refer to DNR as, well, then they won't take care of me. That is not true. That is not true. And we're trying to teach everybody that we don't say um, there's nothing more we can do. At the end of life, there's many things we can do—to hold your hand, to support you, to turn you, uh, to tell you we love you. There is a physician, Dr. Ira Biak, who wrote five things that we need to say before we die, and, and we really focus on those—to have the family there to say those things—I love you, thank you, I forgive you, please forgive me, and most importantly, too, goodbye. And with COVID, as you know, we haven't been able to say all those things, so it's a different Mm -hmm. situation. But um, I I will clarify, too, that DNR is only for the, the cardiac. So if, let's say, my mother would need a DNR and she didn't have one, I could not sign the DNR form. Okay? The DPOA does not have that ability. You can have the conversation with the doctor, and the doctor writes an order. Or if you're at home, they can write it on a screen a script pad, Uh, usually then when you go to the hospital or to long-term care, they write it in the orders. Okay. Okay. Also, on the TPOP form, we have a place about DNRs. And then uh, you can be more specific on the TPOP form about other care, too, if you want just comfort care or you want, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to be hospitalized, you can be more specific on the TPOP if you have a chronic advanced illness. So um, the forms are different.
1: Yeah. So you said um, where you can get them from, and you said what they're for. What do you do once you fill them out?
2: <laughs> That's a very good question. What what do we
1: do with these papers? Well,
2: I always tell people the first thing to do is don't lose them at that point. <laughs> Make copies. Copies are valid. You should probably give one to every physician you have that you currently have. Um, Interestingly, I had a doctor's appointment recently, and it was with uh, an eye doctor, and he asked me if I had my durable powers of attorney. So, you know, I, I thought that was unusual. But you know, if you have a cardiac surgeon, or you have a cardiologist, or you have an internist, or you have a, and as many of you know, when you go to the hospital, you have a hospitalist. So your your DPOA for health care form should they will ask you, as I said. To put it in the hospital record, so they'll know who are those people that you trust to make decisions. So, the other thing that you might do, um, keep a copy at home, that's readily available. Put it. Uh, some people put them on the door of the refrigerator. <laughs> some people put them in the right hand drawer of their desk or in the bathroom, the right hand drawer, wherever you keep. You know, and your children or your family knows where that piece of paper is. Don't take them all and put them in your lockbox at the bank. Then. We can't get them at the hospital. We can't get to your lockbox, so you should make them available. And then if in a few years you decide, oh, uh, I'm going to pick somebody else for the DPOA, or maybe, for example, a spouse has died or you know, someone else on that list is no longer available, you can redo the DPOA for health care. The living will can stay because it's, it's dated, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. So you might want to do the DPOA for health care form if those people move, or addresses, or phone numbers, We we, at the hospital we call people, we don't mail them anything. Mm -hmm. So that's very important in terms
1: of, you can change it again if you want to. Do you accept electronic copies of things, say the DPI is in another state, and they're like, hey, here's my information?
2: Good question, Amy. Absolutely. Yes. Um, in fact, at the hospital, I, I, I don't work at the bedside anymore, and I'm sorry that I don't, but sometimes uh, I, I've had family in the hospital or nurses, friends that tell me this. Once you're in the hospital, they usually like to have the DPOA form in within 48 hours, especially if you're in ICU mm-hmm. or that you are you know critically ill at the time. They 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 need to know that. Who should we talk to? What if what if, for example, my mother had eight children? Okay, which one of those did she choose? <laughs> so that's
0: very important. It seems like a lot of there's a lot up in the air if you don't communicate. What happens if none of this is done? What what happens if you didn't you were Uh, You didn't know any of this going in, and it happens.
2: Yeah, Joe, that happens more than you can even guess probably every day at the hospital. What happens if you don't have them? Well, for example, um, if a person falls at a nursing home, let me give you different scenarios. Mm -hmm. A woman falls at the nursing home, and they find her down, which means then they call 911, and uh, there's no paper. We usually in nursing homes, they'll have some paperwork. That that may not always be true, but maybe at home if they're found down. And uh, they then take them by EMS to the hospital. In the ER, they will do everything that they would do possible. I mean, it might mean that they insert uh, a feeding tube within a few days because they, if, for example, the person's had a stroke and they're not really responding and they're not swallowing. So, essentially, everything will be done. Okay. Mm -hmm. If that's not what you wanted, then you may have a family member come in and have to make decisions about, well, there's no evidence that they this is really helping them. Maybe they've had a severe stroke and they're not going to survive this. So that the, that family member who comes up and says, I, I can help. I'll help Aunt Jane you know, with her decisions. Um, but she may not know what Jane wanted. So the It's very important that we have those paperwork, but if not, we just ask whoever of the family members are there. And it doesn't mean that with the advanced directives, there's no discord, but most often we see it when there's not the durable power of attorney chosen, and you can choose more than one, you know, and they talk to each other, hopefully, but that conversation is so important, but if, if these paperwork is not available, then we. You know, it may mean family has to be contacted from Nevada or New York or wherever it might be. And we we phone them and we say, this is what's going on and we're doing this. And, you know, now we need to decide. But it may delay. Maybe they need to come in and see Aunt Jane before uh, anything is decided. So uh, that it does happen wow. all too often. They, yeah. they say that actually about 20, now maybe 25%, of people who come into the hospital have advanced directives. I'm hoping we can keep working on that.
0: Absolutely. So it sounds like what you're saying is not only is this a decision that you're making for yourself, for your own well-being after you can no longer make these decisions, but it's taking a lot of this deciding and, you know, questions out of the mix for those that you love that are overwhelming those, all of these decisions without any communication. Absolutely. Um, There's been some research done on that, Joe, that Mm -hmm. um, families
2: that have had the advanced directives to guide them and the conversation, they have found that they have less guilt when they have to make these really tough decisions. Should we withhold something? You know, like, let's not start the feeding tube. Or if they have to withdraw it, they've started dialysis, but it's not helping and they're having, you know, they're dying of renal disease. Then they have to... You know, withdraw that uh, particular life-sustaining treatment, but it's not helping anymore. That's the ethical part that comes in: mm-hmm. is that should we do these things sometimes because we can, and but they're not helping make the person better. Um, so, it, it does help with the family; they have less guilt. They've had you know lots of research done on this, and the families also. I. I Relate this to I used to do childbirth education, and people who had babies always had to talk about what happened. Interestingly, now at the end of life, people have to talk about well, what happened? How what you know? I found mom down. Then what happened? Or they had a heart attack, and then you know this happened. They they have to put the story back together. But when they've been able to have these conversations before, which means uncomfortable, difficult conversations sometimes to talk about death and dying, uh, those families feel better about the decisions they've made. Because mom said, don't
0: you, mm-hmm. you know, do sure. that. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's much more comfortable to have that conversation one-on-one rather than contemplating on, you know, what they what they might want, you know, having that for sure. It is uncomfortable to initiate the conversation for some, I'd imagine, but as opposed to not being able to initiate the conversation and having to decide, I'm sure that's a huge relief. Yes, true. There was a book titled um, Talking About Death Won't Kill You.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, I think about that sometimes, that yes, it's uncomfortable, but we all are going to die. Mm-hmm. Not that yeah. we like to think about that, but that that may help, especially that if you know someone has a lot of chronic illnesses, how can we make the end of life better? You know, we have a trajectory of illness sometimes with different kinds of diseases. We know what's going to happen ahead. If we can make their time living, you know, and enjoying life that's important to them, we should have those conversations too, uh, I think. And I I think sometimes there is disagreement among families. Like, you know, mom told you that, but she didn't tell me that. Mm. You know, so can somebody redo the durable power of attorney? Let's say I'm going to choose you, Joe, and, you know, not Sam that got listed by mom, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And we can't change a person's legal document, okay? That, That has to be notarized or witnessed by two people. And let's say that now mothers, you know, unable to make decisions, we cannot choose for her who's going to decide. So the doctors uh, are required to recognize that durable power of attorney that is listed there. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if we might disagree that, you know, he's not making the right decisions or she, I don't agree with her, but mom chose her. So that's what we'll do. And that's where, what you said earlier,
0: just make sure it's, you, you think about who you're You know, making your DPOA. Think about who you're choosing. That's exactly right. Make sure you're on the same page.
2: Right, Um, and it and it doesn't have to be family, but certainly, um, if it's not family and you have family members, tell them why you chose someone else. You know, we don't want to have a lot of discord around the bed when somebody's. You know, we have to make these healthcare decisions, but it does happen. It does Mm -hmm. happen. Um, Interestingly, my mother had eight children and she chose two of them. Now. I still think she chose them for their favors. <laughs> no, not really. They were people that were lived near her. They sure. they gave her her meds. You know, they sorted them mouth. They took her to the doctor. I didn't live there. Mm-hmm. I was the only healthcare professional in the family, but that's okay. She chose them because, really, she would have had to. You know, the physicians would have had to choose discussion with them sure. over me. So,
0: no, that's a good point.
1: So I think one of the hard things about choosing someone is making sure that they follow your wishes. Can a DPOA say that they want something other than either just in general their wishes or something that's technically on the living will? Well, that, that's a very good question too, Amy. I think, again, living will cannot
2: be changed. And physicians, I think for the most part, feel that if there's a living will, and this is an incurable illness, injury, or disease. That person wanted to not have prolonged artificial life sustaining treatments. And that's really what the living will is kind of bundled together to say. But if the DPOA for healthcare is saying, well, let's keep doing the ventilator, let's say. Mm-hmm. The physicians, I know this is a very litigious, is that the right word, people are prone sometimes to do, um, uh, to sue people, to sue physicians because Mm. they feel they've not made the right decision. But... uh, Physicians, I think, will then, we'll just keep conversing with the DPOA or for the, you know, let's, if we're not in agreement, let's keep talking. Okay. You know, and a social worker did a really wonderful job one time. She, we had a situation with a lot of family discord and she talked to the family members and she said, what would Jim want? What would your dad want? You know, and that brought them in agreement because they could all say, dad would say, let me go. And I thought that was really interesting that it, it it broke the bubble of, you know, arguments and discussion. And they said, No, that we know what dad would want. He would say, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sit around my bed. I'm already, you know, not able to get better. So yeah. but always a, a very good question. What do we you know, that's a tough job for a DPOA for healthcare. And but yeah. you have to You know, you have to be willing to honor the wishes, even though they may not be what you would do.
1: And I think a lot of the hesitancy on discussion of end of life and advanced directives and things like that are, you know, older adults not wanting to burden their children. But I got to say as a gpoa i sure wish my parents <laughs> had been a little more forthcoming about their wishes because we you know we kind of waited a little too late to get some of that information from them they had the gpoa set in place which is great they had a living will which is great but we needed that conversation
0: yeah.
2: and it's not just once amy it, mm-hmm.
1: especially with illnesses
2: that are changing like if For example, and this is what we do with TPOP uh, education. If someone's having multiple hospitalizations in a year, oh, there's some real opportunity there to talk about. Okay, now what do you think is going to happen the next time you come back? Uh, What are your goals of care? So important to talk about that because the physician's goals of care for this person might be different than what the patient is. Maybe they want to go to Disney World this next December but the physician knows that the trajectory of this illness is not good and they probably won't be alive by then. So we should talk about, well, what would you like to do if we, you know, we can treat you to get you comfortable, to give you comfort care. But I don't think that you can make that trip. It would be a bit difficult with the disease you have. So there's so much that we, we should talk about. I can't even begin to list all those things. but And, and we don't want to talk about it because it means that we're, we're dying. And, but if we talk about it, I think we can make death a little more respectful, uh, helpful for the person who is dying. Uh, people get to say those goodbyes and thank yous and I love you that they need to.
0: Yeah. Wow. And, you know, that kind of provokes a thought is, is there a point where it's too late? to go through yeah. these uh, as far as DPOA and DNRs and all, all that. Is, is there, what, what, at what point is it, uh, you know, the, the time has passed and now it's in the hands of the doctor or the, the next person? Okay. That,
2: that, that's a very good question because, yes, there is a time that's too late when the person, for example, if I would be unable to speak for myself because I had a stroke that would not allow me to speak or I had a head injury that then I couldn't talk anymore, I had a subdural hematoma where I'm, you know, I'm comatose. I can't speak. Um, if I had to go to surgery, and during that time that I have to go to surgery because of an illness or injury, rather, then who's going to speak for me if you know somebody needs to uh, be asked a question about what do mm-hmm. we do next? Um, so yes, then it's too late if you become unable to speak for yourself, uh, maybe too old and frail. Uh, We also talk about when people get older, you know, my mother, she didn't want all that information. And she said, you know, could you help me out? Uh, What do you think? You know, and that's different than if they are totally unable to speak. What about Alzheimer's? Somebody reaches that point of being unable to really understand, then it's too late. So really, especially with people who have mental health Challenges too, they should have one, and they they should have you know be
1: have someone to speak for them. So another or one reason I know that people are hesitant to um, assign a GPOA is well maybe they're going to say something I don't want to say, and I'm right here still. When does the DPOA kick in?
2: Very interesting question. Yes, that's that's good. Um, Generally, it, it initiates, in fact, on the document, um, it says when the person is no longer willing or able to speak, then we use the DPOA for healthcare. So it, it really would behoove, I, I think, like if you were not certain that somebody really had capacity, okay, to make a decision. And it might be your grandfather that has Alzheimer's and you're just not sure he's really connecting and understanding what the question is, you can have a physician do a mental uh, uh, check. There, there's questions specifically that we ask. Nurses can do it too uh, to to identify the capacity of the person and then you'd have to go to court and uh, in, in the hospital we do this and, and if if there's evidence that the person is unable to understand or unwilling, then we we go to the DPOA. Okay. Now we've also had situations where the DPOA is saying things that we're not certain that that's what. And mom is she still has capacity? We always uh, really reinforce autonomy mm-hmm. if that person can speak. Okay? okay, great. If a daughter says, "No, that's not right, mom. You don't you don't want that. You don't want that feeding tube," and the patient does. And I'm just giving you an example. But if mm-hmm. the patient says and we feel they have autonomy, then we go by the patient, not not turning it over to the DPOA until it's been identified that they can no longer make that decision. Okay. So it may have to be something actually that, you know, if you don't have these documents either, and that goes back to your earlier question too, mm-hmm. Joe. Um, if <clears throat> there's no paperwork at all, then... The person maybe who wants to be the decision maker is not the family's decision together that Joe should be the person to say. They may have to go to court and get a guardianship. Mm. It's more expensive. It's harder, you know, but, but sometimes that occurs. Hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, that's another reason to get the paperwork done. You know, sure. when, you, when you sign your documents, you should sign them in front of a notary or two witnesses, okay? But the witnesses cannot be your family. They could, they have to be 18 and older. Um, they can't be related to you by blood, marriage, or adoption. So that's very important. So if I went to my neighbor, you know, and had them be the witnesses, that's fine. They're not saying that they know exactly what your wishes are. They're just saying, I know that's the person signing this paperwork. And the notary at the bank could do that. They don't have mm-hmm. to know you. They don't have to know the wishes. But before you fill all that form out as to who the DPOA, ask those people if they will be your DPOA for healthcare. Mm-hmm. Okay, That's very important because I had been at the hospital sometimes, and here was the document, and we'd call the person that was listed there, and they go, I haven't talked to Auntie Sue in three years, and I didn't know I was her DPOA. <laughs> so we should really, again, make sure that those people are the ones we want, and we've told them, and give them a copy of the DPOA.
1: And I think that's good for you know people who are afraid of legal fees to know that it doesn't have to go through a lawyer. No, it doesn't. it's absolutely
2: free. Uh, oftentimes, if you did go in, as I said before, you you do a will and testament. The the attorney will bundle all that, uh, and mm-hmm. usually that you know that's fine, that's great. But they're available at um, the hospitals everywhere. And also uh, some of the doctor's offices, not very many have that readily handily available, but but you can get off the internet too with uh, Wichita Medical Research in Kansas, um, or you can get it off. Uh, there's another total website that um, helps a great deal. It's called um, National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. And that acronym is NHPCO.org. And you can go to that and get the document for Hawaii or oh, okay. New York. And um, earlier you asked a question about, well, could I have them sent from another state? We honor them from another state. It doesn't mean you have to have Kansas if you are in the hospital here. It's good to know. You can take your documents to, in, anywhere you go and if you travel. Now, if you went to Europe, I, I have done this. I take it with me because they don't have those documents, but at least they know who to contact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's a helpful form.
0: Wow. I didn't think about states, and, yeah. you know, borders. <laughs> that's, that's a whole other thing.
2: And each state is different. Yeah. The wording is different. Uh, some of the states have specific decisions you can choose. We don't have that in Kansas, uh, but, you know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, if somebody moves to, uh, if you move, and let's say I move from Kansas to Washington State, and I'm, I have my capacity still, I might want to choose to do a Washington one, but they should honor my Kansas one. Okay. So they cross borders and work.
0: You were saying that you promote autonomy and you, you will support that. So if they have the ability to make the decision, they don't have to refer to the DPOA. And I right. feel like that would be a big deterrent for a lot of people is that they don't want that to come too soon. They don't want people to take over while they can still make decisions. So I just feel like that was a, or that would be a comforting thought. You know, it, it comes in when it needs to come in.
2: Yeah. that and, I, and specifically, I've had people say, well, if I sign this, is my daughter going to take over, you know, or whatever. Right. And that's absolutely not true. And I can give you an example of uh, a situation where uh, a woman had done her DBOA for healthcare, and she made the choice to stop her chemotherapy treatments. And her daughter said, Mom, you really should just keep going. But the woman had said, I'm done. I'm dying. I'm not able to really tolerate this very well. It's taking away my energy. You know, whatever she her mm-hmm. comment was, her decision was, her autonomy, that means making your decision for yourself. She said, I want to stop. And the daughter thought she could choose for her. <laughs> and that's not true. Mm-hmm. Unless, you know, the mother had totally lost all, a capacity. Sure. So then again, that should be a question, you know, prior to the time that somebody loses capacity, too. What what do you want to do if you get to the point where you're done?
0: Yeah.
2: So so the paperwork is, is important, but the conversation, again, <laughs> sure, absolutely. is essential.
1: So you talked about wanting... Um you needing to do more promotion of advanced directives, where do you guys generally do that at? We,
2: we really promote them uh, through classes that I teach. Uh, Two groups, you can call Wichita Medical Research Education Foundation and ask them uh, to contact me. Um, and the number for Wichita Medical Research Education Foundation is 316 686 seven one seven two. And if you have a question that we didn't cover today, you can call Wichita medical research and, um, ask Teresa or Peggy, uh, they are the employees there. And then if they can't answer it, they're both really smart, but they, if they can't answer it, then they call me. So we will get back to you with your answer. Uh, so if, uh, anyone, you know, tomorrow wants to look at the website that that's also listed, uh, with frequently asked questions there, some that we have already covered today, but others, so that might be helpful too.
1: Awesome, and I believe um, we also have a link to um, your website on our website at cpaa.org in case that one's easier for you to remember. <laughs> but but we do have a, a link to your website.
2: Okay, with Wichita Medical Research, yes, yes. the Wichita okay.
1: Medical Research link. Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: They are actually located uh, in Wichita. They have an office uh, to the east of Wesley Medical Center. They're not part of uh, Wesley, but they are at 3306 East Central Avenue, and it's right at Rutan and Central okay. on the northeast side of the street.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much today, Carolyn, for being here. I learned a lot. I hope um, our listeners learned a lot Um I just, I really think this is an important subject for people to know about and learn about. And I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you,
2: Amy, very much. And again, Wichita Medical Research Education Foundation has uh, been so generous to take over the uh, education and the, um, the forms on their website. So contact wichitamedicalresearch.org uh, and Peggy Johnson or Teresa Carter at that location. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: From all of us at Central Plains, Area Agency on Aging, aging is living and living is a wonderful thing.